I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello and welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. I'm here today at Grove, which can mean only one thing in terms of the location of a, a motorsport team, and that is I'm at the home of Williams F1 with team principal, or are you CEO? What's your exact title? It's both. Both. He's got both. <laughs> well, his name's Jos Capito, and um, I think he is the most unsung man with the most interesting career in motorcars that I've ever met in all the time that I've I've worked in in motoring or motorsport. So welcome, Jost, and I want to I want you to talk me through your life in cars, basically. We're going to do a chronology, because it's fascinating. Oh, okay. His CV, let me give you a taster at the top of this show. If I told you he was invo- involved in the development of everything from the 964RS to the F-150 Raptor to the first, first Focus RS, um, maybe a bit of BMW M3 uh, in the meantime, I mean... I've never known a CV like it. And he sits here modestly um, with his jumper on as if he's a, quite a normal bloke, but he really isn't. And now he's running a Formula One team. So let's just say he knows a bit about cars. Where, where did it start? We've all got a moment, I know where mine is, when I realised that the motor car was the love of my life. When, when, did it, when did it happen for you? I think for me, uh, it was more motoring, not not Because you had two wheels as well. Cars. Yes, because I started on two wheels. And I was, I'm still really keen on motorbikes, and I love motorbikes more than cars. Um, and I started racing enduro and motocross in the mid 70s. But then, uh, for me, I always wanted to work on engines. And my dream was I wanted to work for Paul Roche at BMW because he was for me the engine guy. So then I went to Munich to university. And what year? What year was this? This. What, what, what? I'm not. I'm not trying to give away your age, but so we we're talking. <laughs> mid, give away we're my talking age, about. No we're talking about mid 70s, or we're we talking early 80s. No, no. I started racing in 74. Okay. So it's a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, and then I went to Munich in 79 to university. 
and I always was also was driving Sundab at that time. So before we get to before we get to you going to Munich, how good are you on a bike? Because I see you on the Facebook now and again. You're clearly still good on a bike. You love a bike. Were you were you a competitive rider? Were you did you did you get high up and then have a moment where you thought I'm going to stop doing this? What happened? Yeah. I was I started in 74, late 74, and I was German junior champion in 75 and 76. There he goes. Amazing. 50 cc in 75 yep. and 175 cc in 76. Oh, this is this is circuit racing or is this <coughs> This was enduro. Enduro, yeah, yeah. Enduro. I think I did the international 6 days enduro four or five times. Oh, that's the legendary race, and isn't it? I came, the best result was 79. I came third in my category. In Physically how tough? Five. Physically how tough? Well, that's quite tough. Yeah. It's a six days, it's quite tough, yes. So, and then, um, you know, I had to decide going to university. I had uh, was like semi-factory driver for KTM, for Sundab, and I raced Maiko as well. So I had to decide. What is this twin shock back then? Is it? Is it? Or is it single shock? Uh, it it was the period when it changed from from twin shock to single shock. <laughs> I raced the Yamaha one two five in motocross. That was the first with the single shock. Yeah. That was the mono shock. That was it must have been 70, 76, 75, 76, Yeah. And. Uh, then uh, I had to decide what to do. You know, I went wanted to be an engine engineer because that was my dream, and uh, I had to decide going to university, and that meant you couldn't race as a factory driver anymore. So I couldn't do the European Championship enduro, and I couldn't do the international six days because it all felt on the exams on the university. So I decided I wouldn't be the top. I, I wouldn't be world champion in anything on the motorbike, so I decided it's better to have a career as an engineer and and follow this. Mentally, you've always struck me as someone who is single-minded and, and, and strong. Was that a point in your life that you have any regrets about? Do you now, do you ever wonder what might have been? I mean, to have, to have been that competitive <coughs> and, to, think, and to switch it off? I think when I went to school and also to university, I had two things. Either I work for Paul Rocher at BMW and become an engine engineer, or I go to Australia and run a sheep farm and become a, become a farmer. These were my two things. So when I was at school, I opened an account in Australia, put a couple of Deutschmarks in there because then you could go to Australia if you had five years uh, plus account. So I had with a couple of Deutschmarks a plus account, uh, got the, the local news magazine sent by mail where it was the houses and farms were in and then i decided okay and when university i studied everything on cars and everything on farming so i could design potato farming machines and tractors and all that so because i go farming or i go automotive and uh, said if i get my dream job with paul Rocher at bmw m as an engine engineer i'll do that and when I got the job, I did my diploma work there. I fought hard to get the diploma work at BMW uh, And when they employed me during the diploma work and working on the engine performance development for the M3 engine, the first M3 engine, and that was the point to say, okay, that's my dream job. I forget everything. I canceled the account and said, Australia is done. This is what I do. So when did you join BMW M? Or did it be that M even exist in '79? Did it was it? Uh, yeah, it existed. It in did. 79, it did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I joined. Then I did my diploma work in '84. Yeah. And then during the diploma work, I got employed. 
Okay. So 84 is around the time that the E30 M3 is going to be launched. So it gets launched in 85, does it? Or is it 86? I think it must have been 86 because I my diploma work was the air exchange in the cylinder of this four-cylinder four-stroke The engine. S14 engine. S14. That was my diploma work. So uh, I was in charge then in the, to to create and, and to identify the imp, the intake and exhaust ports of the of the cylinder head. That was my. So this is a very work. interesting engine for me. I, I I'll I'll I'll, um, I'll express an interest because I've still got one. Um, so I'm not trying to big up the values of them, but it's always very interesting making a street an engine that's going to be used in a streetcar for homologation that you know has to perform as a race engine and be developed as a race engine. How did you go about it? Because for me, it's very interesting because in the streetcar, I think the engine is quite disappointing. It's not very refined. It uh, it revs well, but compared to the six-cylinder engines that BMW had at the time, there was a lot of people like me who thought, this isn't quite as smooth. It doesn't feel as luxurious. But of course, we knew that it had the potential to rev so much higher. So how do you go about that? Are you just focused on what you need for the racing or are you focused on what you think the streetcar needs? Or are you trying to do both? It was a bit of both. At that time when I started, there was there was only one engine development. It was not uh, separated. Uh, there was the Formula One time at that time. So yep. there was a Formula One engine was a separate department. Yep. And that was a, was a road department. So we focused on the road going engines. Yeah. And uh, then, of course, that became the, the DTM engine as well. And at the time, I think after two years when I was there, it was separate. And then Wolfgang Hatz, he came from BMW AG, came to M and did the, the four-cylinder engine for the DTM on the racing development. And I did the road car development. And Amazing. I wanted to do the road car development because I found it always more exciting and more challenging to do a road car because of yeah. all the homologation. And uh, you, you have much more responsibility to, to get the car and the road uh, engine in or a car into production than to get two cars on the racetrack. So did you, did you do all of them? Did you do the all of the engines? Did you do the 2.5 as well or you, had you left by then? No, I was in, uh, I did the 2.5. That was the, that was the, uh, let's say the evolution. Yeah. And that was quite a challenge because uh, the, the, uh, let's say the electronic, the, you know, you had the flap to yep. measure the air. Yeah. That was, there was not a big one available enough to, 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 to be suitable for the DTM. Really? So we had to do an Alpha N and uh, Alpha N, uh, let's say, regulated engine yeah. without that flap. And that for a road car is quite, so you had only the throttle opening and the refs. And you had to make that road going because it needed a certain number of road going cars to be sold. Yes. So for racing, that it's easy because you can every race, you can adjust it. But for road going car, you had to do this and working under all conditions. So that was the biggest challenge to do this. And I was in charge of that. And I also was in charge of the performance development of the 320IS. So the two liter engine. For Italian market. Yeah, for the Italian market. And there the objective I got was it has to be the fastest two liter car on in Italy beside the two liter Ferrari. And there was the Ford two liter there turbo. Was, there was the two liter 308, wasn't there? They did an emissions three Ferrari yes. three, uh, yes. 308, yeah. But the highest challenge was to beat 
the the fort was it the was it was it the two little turbo they had was it the Scorpio at that time or no, yes they Scorpio. Uh, no the Sierra Sapphire the Sierra the Sierra two little turbo was then to beat by the two liter natural aspirated BMW. Did you manage it? Yeah, we managed it, and I think that was really uh, was. It was even the better engine than the two point three because. Of course I've it heard was this. Smoother. Was it smoother? Yeah, yeah. Because the two point I had, I've owned, I've owned both, and the two point five was exciting and it had more torque and it was faster, but it wasn't as sweet as the little two point. The nicest one I had was a little two point three without the catalyst. Quite an early car. Yeah, yeah. This was a lovely, yeah, a lovely you car. You should try to get your hands on the two liter because because uh, it could rev much higher. What could it rev to? Oh, we had it. 7.6 and we reduced it to 7.6 because otherwise the performance of that engine would have been better than the 2.3 <laughs> so we, we, we had to we had to keep it a bit down that engine was absolutely so what was it like work that was this was the beginnings of BMW M to be there at the at the time you wouldn't have known you were building a performance icon brand mm, you yeah. but looking back in fact every what <laughs> every performance brand now that is owned by either Ford or by AMG, Mercedes or Audi with the RS, they looked at BMW M as the beginning, yeah. that this is the one they all tried to copy. Yeah. How does it feel now, looking back, Paul Rocha, I mean, to work with, so you got to work with your hero to start with. Yeah. Um, were you aware it was special at the time? Um, for me, it was always special. Uh, say BMW, for me, in the past, always did the best engines. My father had BMWs, and I loved BMW, and I wanted to be at BMW. And for me, they did the best engines. So, And uh, also said, if you do the diploma work at BMW M, you are interested for everybody in the industry. Really? You noticed that? Yeah. Yeah. So that was clear at that time. So what what when was that the last thing you did at BMW M was the E30 M3? Did you move on after that, or did you where did you go straight away after that? I was in charge. We were two guys, a friend, uh, yeah, a colleague who became a friend, and me. We were two guys in charge of the performance development of all M cars. Oh. So that was just. So two did guys. you do the E28 M5? Yeah. Oh, come on, I never knew that because I've I've still got one of those. Yeah. This is that's my favorite M car. I know it doesn't have the motorsport history, yeah. but I still think it's one of the most ridiculous road cars ever made. Yeah, they were light. It still oh, feels oh. fast now. Yeah, when I is, go in this car now, is, with the little Michelin tires <clears throat> on it, it's incredible to drive. Yeah. And the best was then we had to do the test, the winter test for the for the calibration. Oh, well, that must have been a real shame going to all the sliding. It was really good. It was really good, and also the also the reliability test in Ido. Yeah. So we, I've been in '85. I think I've been nine weeks in Nardo with the M3 and the M5. Wow. And no other, no other car company was doing this then. No other car company was as committed to making very high performance cars from their ordinary models, were they? BMW, the, BMW began a trend. Yeah. I think if Volkswagen yeah. was the first company to put a big engine in a hatchback, <coughs> really in mass market, BMW always. If you read the car magazines back then. You always almost felt sorry for the opposition when the BMW arrived in the test. Do you remember? You'd oh, how can they compete with this M5? So you, E28 M5, I didn't realize you'd done that. Did you do the the E34 as well? Or I think that was later. That yeah. Was later. Yeah. Because I moved on uh, in was it 89? 89. I moved on to. To Porsche. Yeah. Straight to Porsche? Yeah. And in, in uh, <laughs> Zuffenhauser or did you go straight into Weissach? 
No, I went straight into Weissach. Yeah. Yeah, straight and, into the race department. And what was your job title there? Um, was like uh, I was running the one makeups. Yeah. Because you know um, Ulrich, Ulrich Betz. Yeah. He was at BMW, so I knew him from BMW, and then he was the head of R and D at Porsche. Yeah. And uh, he asked me. He said, "I'm looking for somebody who runs, gets the Carrera Cup up to speed, because the Carrera Cup started in '90." And um, then I went there in October 89 to start the Carrera Cup up. And they got, you know, Herbert Linge? Yeah. They got him back out of retirement to do that with me. Yeah. And I think that was a great experience because Herbert Linge was, the, I think it was the fourth employee at Porsche at the beginning. Amazing. So, and he was the guy who proposed to Professor Porsche to buy the area in Weissach because he lived in Weissach and he knew there is an area that is for sale. And then they went, he went with Professor Porsche to the, to the local government in Weissach and purchased the area and then built Weissach. So working with that guy was... He knew everything. He knew absolutely everything. That was, uh, was absolutely amazing. And he, he, was to, he was also, you know, he, uh, he started the ONS staffel. So the safety, that, that was the yep. first worldwide, really uh, specialists on, on race safety. Yeah. And uh, there, I learned a lot from him there as well. What and about, um, it's a, your, there's one connection here that I hadn't really realized until just now, thinking. You're there to create the most, one of the most ambitious one-make series ever seen. But of course at BMW, you also saw previously the most ambitious one-make series, which was Pro Car. Yeah. Did you have anything to do with Pro Car? No, that was gone when I arrived. Was it? Because mm -hmm. oh, did, you, did you use any of what you'd heard about Pro Car costing BMW when you, when you started doing the Super Cup? Because I, I, it must have cost BMW a lot of money, Pro Car. It looks to me like it must yeah. have cost yeah, them a sure. lot. But that was before my time. Yep. So we start, you know, we could base the Carrera Cup. There was the 944 Turbo Cup. Yep. So we there was something to base on, but the Turbo Cup was was not done in in the race department. That was done. That was done in the sales department. Yeah. And, and then it, with the Carrera Cup, it was taken into the race department. So the one make cups went went there. So had the 964 Cup been as it. It might not, not have even been called the 964 Cup then. Whatever. The 964 race car, had it been developed by the time you arrived or were you involved in the development of the car? It was mainly developed when because if I arrived in October. Yeah. And but that was very much done by Roland Kusmal. We'll come on to him now. And, and Roland, I knew from the Perry Dakar because I've done the Perry Dakar from 83 to 86. And there I met, of course, we met all the with the Porsche guys because... Did you Germans ride it yourself or were you working... You didn't ride it yourself. Yeah. You did? Yeah. Jesus Christ, he's yeah. done everything. Yeah, I won the truck category in 85 are, are you father. Are you actually Superman? No. Okay. No. So so you get there, and um, and of course Roland will love this, because Roland... Yeah, I knew him from the Perry Dakar. We know how much uh, he, he would respect you hugely, because anyone that does that kind of rally raid for Roland is obviously means you're a good guy. Yeah, and we did it together. So yeah. we were together in the desert. So we became already their friends. Yeah. So and then going to Porsche and meet all these guys again, that was, was really great. Like so coming it was home. Coming back home, yeah. So um so Roland has done most of the work already to make this cup, this nine sixty four yeah. cup. Yeah. And the specification was what? It's only it was only ten horsepower more than the streetcar, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was 
Like an uh, airbox and not much yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, and the exhaust, so mainly that. And the car was fully built in production. And that was why the intention was to keep it as cheap as possible and to keep it as close to production as possible for this then. And also make the car, e keep it easy to drive. So, because you have a variant of drivers, if the car is easy to drive, you keep your field close. If the car is tricky to drive, like a high specific race car, uh, the good drivers get even a bigger advantage than the not that good drivers, and then the field gets too far apart and you don't get really interesting racing. I think, um, did you, again, you wouldn't have realized at the time that what you were doing actually was building, building the legend that would become all of the RS models for the last 35, 40 years. I yeah, mean, it this was is then they didn't have RS for a while then, the Porsche. From 73 to 1990. Mm. Yeah, and then, well, I think must have been, uh, yeah, 1990, yes. And then when we had the cup car, some of the customers uh, registered it for road. Yeah. Oh, yeah? did they? Yeah. And we didn't like to see that. But I've seen the advantage and say, why don't we do an, a road car based on the cup car and call it RS? So, and it was a hard fight with the board to get this through because they didn't see that you can, you can sell the numbers. So I committed to a number so that they agreed that they're selling it. We, we, we sell it, I think, four times more. So we had the two versions. Yeah. We had the club sport version and the standard version. And the club sport was without any carpet inside with a weld in roll cage. So that also went then very well for the created the big opportunity for the club sport that took then off as well with the 964. Did you, was that a problem making so many cars in motorsport? Did you have to make them in Vysak or were they made no, over? They were all built on the, all the race cars were built on the, on the production line. Really? Even with the welded in cage? How did yes. you manage that? Yes. So the, was the body was built, then it went to, I think it went to Mata to yeah. weld the cage in and yeah. it went back into production. So it got then the painting got all in production. So it was was the quality was extremely high. So the whole painting inside was like a production car. Look, when we come to discuss the Ford Focus RS later on, you do you do cause your production line managers some problems, don't you? Sometimes with your requests, when we think about the Focus RS, no, I always had a good relationship with the production guys. As <laughs> now, if you want to build these cars in production, that the production guys are really proud to build high performance cars and yeah. to show what they can do outside building normal cars. Yes. Yeah. So working with them and keep them enthusiastic about it was, was really good. And they found solutions uh, really to build these cars on the line. So you've now got the 964 RS in production. I That's around the time when I really was, I was consuming every car magazine. And the 964 RS remains a paradox for me because right now, and for the last 15, 20 years, it's been considered one of the great Porsches. You know, it's the collectors want the cars because they're rare. The 964 shape, I think, has, has really registered as being beautiful again yeah. now. People really love the 964 yeah. shape. Yeah. The car has a very unique sound, and it does drive beautifully. It's quite an unforgiving car. But the reviews, when the car was new, certainly in the UK, were terrible. Yeah. They, the, all the UK press hated the car. They said they couldn't understand why it was so stiff, the ride comfort, why the car was so noisy. It's so interesting. You go back and read the reviews and the journalists couldn't understand. It's only 10 horsepower more than the standard car. Why would you do it? And, and now, of course, everyone thinks the car is amazing. But I, I, I always, and you can help me here, I always thought the difference was that in the UK, our roads are so bad 
that the suspension just didn't work over here. But in Germany, I presume this wasn't a problem because the roads no. are so much better. No, it was not a problem at all. Yeah. Did you ever? Did you have one yourself? Did you ever? Did you ever buy one, or did you? No, I never had a car that I developed. I never. Unbelievable! Because and you always had access to them, or you move on to the next thing. No, it's, I think if you are for, for me, it was if you develop them when they go in production, it's an old car you're not interested in anymore, because you're already working on the next one, and you know the next one is so much better. Yeah. So you, that's why I never was when when the car got into production for me the interest was gone. Okay, so uh, Roland Kusmal, um, who you got to work with, it fascinates me because he's another one. He's a bit like you. He's one of these below-the-waterline heroes that no one knows about, but he really is the real deal, isn't yeah, he, he, as an engineer? He is the best race engineer I ever met and the, and the most capable of driving. You know, he keeps a record in the IndyCar around Weissach. Does he really? Yeah, yeah. So he is, he is an amazing race driver. He is incredibly fast. You said that when you were before we recorded yes, when you were at Sauber, you had some difficulties. What happened? You yeah, said well, you... when when they had difficulties with the setup, and I thought the engineers do not really know what to do. I called Roland <laughs> and talked to him over the phone, and he gave me advices. So uh, he's absolutely he's a brilliant guy, he, and not just as an engineer, as a person as well. He is. It's just a fantastic. When I went over to drive the the latest GT3 Porsche, was still had some covering on it. We were driving through some villages down in those Swabian hills, and um, as you know, it's near Flacht around there. And coming towards us on a Friday morning, terrible weather, was was a white with red stickers nine nine. What would it be a nine? Uh, the first GT3 RS, so a nine nine six GT3 RS, white with red. And it's Roland just going, <laughs> we stop him. Hello, Roland. He just holds out his tennis racket and goes, I'm off to play tennis. Yeah, and then just drives yeah, off. Yeah. Big tennis player. Um, and a big experience, great experience with him was in 94, Le Mans. I was a team manager for Porsche in 94 when we won Le Mans. And he was the head engineer. So we solved all the troubles. We did the strategy together. Was this a turbo? Was this the GT2? Oh, was the Dower? Yeah. The year of the, you did the Dower? Yeah. Now that was a no come on, Yoss. That was a naughty car. I mean, how how did you? So you were part of the 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 body that managed to persuade the ACO that you yeah. could turn up with, brilliant. And that was uh, we we raced there against the Jaguars. Right, start from the beginning. Right, we need this now. The Dower story. So so just to clear up, for, so the nine sixty two, uh, well the nine five six nine sixty two have been dominant for so many years, and then Porsche goes back to Le Mans with a car mm. that was effectively renamed. Tell us the story, it's fascinating. It's an amazing piece of, of, uh, of clever thinking from yeah, Porsche. Yeah, Max Welty was the motorsport director at Porsche. Yeah. And, uh, and I, he was he's brilliant and uh, really worked well with him and really loved working with him. So uh, we had the idea, so how, how we get Porsche back into Le Mans. And uh, that was the GT, the GT1, because we're going to, you know, GT1 was the area that really suited Porsche. And how we could get into GT1 on the way that not develop a complete new car. So we see Dauer homologated a car for the road, and a, nine, a 962. So we, we started discussing with Dauer and say, look, can we have your homologation? We do, we do the proper homologation, we do it all right at Porsche, but we use your car and your name to, to go Le Mans and we could sell that to the board. And then of course it was not like we'd raced then against the Jaguar who was a full group C car. 
<coughs> and we had on paper absolutely no chance and nobody expected us to win and they and they were leading but we were and it was still a, it was still a riveted aluminium chassis was it was it that old or was it a carbon no 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 it was a original 962 jesus okay and then we we sandbagged during the race to keep the checker a bit slow and then uh, then at this at the certain time we've seen they got some problem and they didn't take the problem too serious they caught they could go in the pits and and have the t I think they had to change a gearbox, and then we speed it up, and that was with Max, Roland, and me looking <laughs> at the strategy how we do it, and we speed it up massively, so we could overtake them. Then during they they were they thought they were safe. If you, if they hadn't had the problem, could you have caught them? No, 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 no chance. But no. we knew there is no chance theoretically not, but we knew they had some weak spots, so then we speed it up. And we came into first and second when they went out of the pits out of the pits again, and then they could overtake our second car. So we won. They came second, and then uh, Eddie Irvine was driving the Jaguar, and I knew I knew Eddie from because he was driving once the Super Cup as a VIP driver as well. So and I went in the in the after the podium, I went to see him in his caravan. All the drivers had their own caravan. And he was there, knocked, he was there in the underwear, and they said, Eddie, just congratulations for the runner-up position. And, and, and he jumped after me in his underwear, <laughs> running through the paddock and screamed, cheating bastard, cheating bastard. <laughs> so this is interesting. You've gone from, you've gone from being um, an, an, a, an engineer, someone who's just dealing with the technical <clears throat> side of a, of a car. You've now, your career's progressed, and now it's... Sounds like this is politics. You're now really dealing with racing politics. And Dower, the year the year Dower won, is the ultimate example of racing politics. You're trying. Yeah. You are yeah. really yeah. trying to navigate. So this must have been the best possible place to learn yeah. what your job is now. Really. Yeah, it was also when we see we created. We looked at the Super Cup that you know Porsche went out of Formula One, but. The idea was then, uh, of course, with Max Valti, we wanted to get Porsche back in Formula One. But he said, how we prepare for this? So we can't be completely away from Formula One. So he said, if we have the Super Cup within Formula One, then we are still there and we are in the heart of Formula One. So working, uh, working with the organization, being in the being then in the tower and, and knowing Formula One from an angle that no other team, the Formula One team, have no ex not access to. Very clever. So, so, was that you that helped define that with, with Bernie? Was that was it you? Yes, that... I did the deals with Bernie. Max and I, we did the deals with Bernie and also for the TV and, and, and so to, to create this. And uh, for that, I also, uh, you know, I did the courses. Um, I'm an official... FIA race director, I'm official FIA safety delegate, and I'm an official FIA scrutineer. So um, with that, we got the respect of the Formula One because I had all these certificates. So and I was like the race director of the Super Cup, but it was raised from the race director with the Formula One. So we looked at the track, what is needed to change to be safe for the Porsches. And, and also we, we, we directed the whole race together. So that gave me an, in, an inside view of Formula One that I had to access to the tower any time. Yeah. And normally a Formula One team doesn't have that. So Porsche didn't get back into Formula One then, 
but I think the Super Cup is now since 93 continuously with Formula One and it's uh, 30 years this year. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing legacy. I love the idea that you're an official FIA scrutineer, but you were the person that signed the entry form for the Dower 962 <laughs> to Le Mans. This is, uh... I didn't sign it. <laughs> <laughs> so from 94, um, how, how much longer did you stay at Porsche? Was that the end of your time there? No, I stayed until 96. Okay. <clears throat> so did you do the 993 GT2? Were you involved in that car? But that was then, you know, after the nine, uh, 964 RS, yeah. that was the first, let's say, RS and performance car done in the race department. Yes. So then it became like an own organization. Yeah. So this organization in the race department developed these cars. So I was not in charge of the development of those cars. Okay, you, you were on the race side. Yeah. So you did do the, did you do the, the GT1 then? The nine, the G, the first GT one yeah, on, on the organization. That yes. was that was just a starting. When was that? The first year, ninety seven. I think. So maybe. I left ninety end of ninety six. Okay, and where did you go to that? Where did you go then? then I go to Sauber. Yep. But not to the race. But they built up Sauber Petronas Engineering, and Max Welty went from Porsche to Sauber. Yep. And they were looking for somebody to build up the Sauber Petronas engineering. And this was to create the, <coughs> the Silver Arrows to, that would ultimately no, become no, those? No, no, That was commercial engineering. Okay, interesting. It was commercial engineering and Petronas, um, you know, Petronas was the main sponsor of, of uh, Sauber at that time. Yep. And Petronas is a, a government-owned company, oil company, and they, and Malaysia had the vision 2020 they wanted to be the leading industrial country by 2020 in the south in southeast asia and for them it was the automotive industry is key to do this so they had proton uh, proton they had big deals with was partly owned by mitsubishi and proton was about to buy lotus as well wasn't it that happened they did. yes yeah yeah they did so they were they they but they were not allowed to develop engines they had to use the mitsubishi engines and um, then we say that Proton, uh, that Petronas said, okay, they need engine development and engine technology as well. So they want to say, okay, we are in Formula One with Salva, so this is the ideal base to develop engine, uh, an engine, and uh, develop capabilities for Petronas for engine development. So. We, they, they created this Salva Petronas Engineering, and you remember Osamu Goto? Yeah. And him and I were the first guys to join and to build up that company. And then we got Malaysian engineers to train in the, in the project and to develop. First, we had to do an engine strategy for Malaysia. Okay. That was, was really, I think that was a once, an opportunity once in a lifetime yes. to create for a nation, to create an engine strategy and an automotive strategy that was really cool yeah and then we developed a four-cylinder a four-cylinder uh, aluminium engine four valve lightweight because we have to go with something standard but high technology and we worked together with Yamaha and with Ricardo and uh, to develop this engine and the prototype and having the Malaysian engineers in a 
in the development program as well. So and how did that fit with Mitsubishi then? Were they? Did you have? Did they? Did Proton then have to say to Mitsubishi, "We've made our own engine," or had they already agreed that Mitsubishi would let them use their no, own that engine? That was not. That was not linked to Proton at that time. Oh, it wasn't. Okay. So it was Petronas. Petronas. Based in the in in for the government. Okay. So and that was pretty cool. And then uh, after eighteen. So months, you were a civil servant technically, weren't you? Working for a government, really. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Petronas government company. Yeah. yeah. But they were really good, and I learned a lot from them. I think that the, the management there, the CEO. Well, so, you, so, there. You, so actually, did you? Because you, the man that said earlier that when you when you were looking to get your ultimate job with Mister Russia, um, you were, you actually had one eye on having money in an Australian bank account, so you could potentially become a sheep farmer. You obviously have a strategic brain. Unlike most men, you have the ability to concentrate on one thing and be aware of other things. Most men can't do that. Um, there's a there's a woman in the room who's obviously nodding at the moment, saying, "Yeah, she totally gets that." Um, and um, so, at this stage, are you trying to build the ultimate motoring CV? Because you have you now have experience of the shop floor, the idea of sitting there and being the person that designs the one component in the engine. You have the experience of this. Then you have the experience of running a race team on a small level. Then you have the experience of a, a big manufacturer-backed project, which is a, ultimately a political position. Um, you've made entire road cars, and now you're working for a government to define an entire strategy for motoring in a country. Without realising it, you're creating the ultimate motoring CV. Were you aware of that at the time, or were you just going where your nose took you? No, I was. I never had also a plan where I go, because if I would have had the plan about the strategy, what, what I want to become, I would have never done all this and that you would have maybe worked through in a company and grow in a company. But I always, uh, as I try to do the job I had to do the very best to do this job and then opportunities come up and if there's something coming up that it's on highly interest, then say, okay, let's move on and get a different experience and do the very best there. So this is why it added all up with very different, different things. So I was fascinated by, by, the, by the Malaysians how they work, what, what, how their thinking was, and, and working with a, Muslim, with a Muslim company was really interesting, and I learned a lot through that, and it was, was a very pleasant experience. How, how long were you there for? Yeah, I was, I was there for until 2001, um, but after 18 months, um, they did, at Salva, they did uh, a, like an analysis with an external company, what the team has to do to become better in Formula One on the Formula One side. And the result was it has to develop from a traditional race team to an engineering based and structured company. And then they asked me if I would be interested to do that in addition to the role on the commercial side as the COO for Formula One. So then uh, I agreed to do that in parallel and restructured the whole team and from from 98 to 2001 we came from eights in the manufacturer championship in formula one to fours yeah. to be the best non-factory team without increasing the budget just working different and, and and putting the focus different developing objectives and 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 yeah just just creating a, why, why do you company. think why i knew that but obviously i i, I let it slip my mind but why do you think Ford, when you when your next move goes to Ford Motor Company, why do you think looking back they made they made so little of your incredible experience in the industry? It wasn't until I went looking for for your history in in, in automotive in the automotive industry that I that I found it. 
Ford never told us anything about this. Ford, yeah, they had this asset. Really? No, for sure they didn't know. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> that was then, I wanted to, you know, I was always more fascinated about performance cars for the road than on racing. Yeah. And, um, and then after the Sauber time, the engine, the prototype was done, was all. And, and by the way, we did my, the last thing I did at Sauber was a MotoGP engine. Was it? Yeah, the motor, the three-cylinder MotoGP engine that was launched in Suzuka in in two thousand and one, early two thousand and one, and that became then the superbike engine. Because yeah. Because when I left, they swapped from MotoGP to superbike with Fogarty. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> and um, and that's where I got the offer from Ford because Martin Leach con uh, contacted me and he said uh, was. Oh, Actually, it was Ulrich Betz who contacted me first and said Ford is looking for somebody to re-invite re the RS brand and the performance cars again. Uh, would you be interested? And then I had a meeting with Martin Leach in Cologne and I think the chemistry was right from the first minute. Yeah. So then, um, I said, okay, yeah, I'll go back to Germany. This is fine. And at the end of the discussion I had with Martin, when he really sold me that job, then he said, and by the way, it's in the UK. So, and so, you'd never lived in the UK before? No, no. So then, okay, it's in the UK, so go to the UK. And, and without, I have to ask about your personal life. At this stage, are you married? Do you have kids? Or what, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. You, so you don't want to uproot your family from Germany? And I presume they're in Germany, are they? No, my wife is Italian. Okay, so you, so you but what about going to, so where, where was the family home when you had to move to, when you had to move to England, where were you living? Yeah, in Switzerland. In Switzerland, okay. Yeah, so, in Sauber. Yeah, so... I was so, five years in Switzerland, so... But we're moving all the time. It was first, first it was Munich, then it was Stuttgart, around Stuttgart, then from there it went to Switzerland, and from there to the UK, from there to the US. Did you enjoy the UK? Yeah, very yeah? much. I love Chelmsford, yeah. Yeah, good, because Essex is a curious part of the world, but I, for those that don't live there, but you, it's... Um, it's actually there's quite there's a it's a good lifestyle, isn't there? And it's quite a quite an affluent part of the country as well. So it's it's it's, it's a like, nice place to I live. I like the people there. I like to work with the English people, and and also the social life is. I think it's much more close and respectful than it is in Germany or somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, I think people help each other much more than than anywhere else. That's interesting. And, and uh, I think I got very good friendships in the UK from that time. That 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 still lasts. So let's look back at that then. That's when I first met you. When I when um, this very exciting period when Ford clearly decided it was going to spend some money to to build some halo cars to help sell its ordinary cars to resurrect the RS brand. Um, and that then also meant going rallying with uh, Colin McRae and Delacour and amazing people like that. To, to and there was it was so exciting. And then when this streetcar arrived, the Focus RS, I couldn't believe Ford had done it. I still think it's a great car. It didn't, you know, it had its faults, but it was so exciting. It was so much better than any fast Ford I'd ever driven. Is it something you're very proud of now? How does it how does it sit compared to the M3, the 964 RS? Do you consider it alongside those cars, or do you think it's less of an achievement? How do you feel about it when now? When I arrived, the the Focus RS was already was nearly done. Yeah, not done, but, but nearly. It, it needed a, a good revamp before it could go in production. So I didn't do the concept. So I'm I'm proud of the result. 
but I'm not like with many of the other cars where I started from the concept and had to sell it to the boy that yep. was done. That was done. So I think we still give it a nice finish and, and made it really reliable and, and working for the road. But it was, I don't call that my car because I was not involved from the beginning. But it was, uh, it was the, might be the last time that the Ford Motor Company in Europe would ever really invest in high performance cars, wasn't it? You know, it was a, you had Martin Leach, you had a boss who was an enthusiast and wanted Ford to be a company that had excellent vehicle dynamics for performance cars. And I suppose was, was Richard Perry Jones still there then, or did yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. So I worked very close with 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 Martin and with Richard. So and they were both fantastic. They're car guys, aren't they? Oh yeah, it was fantastic to work with them. And I learned so much again from from them, from Martin also on the business side. And, and from Richard on the car side was fantastic. Did you do this? Did you do the second RS? Did yeah. you? Yes. Yeah. And that was your car, was yes. it? That? Yes. That was from the idea. You know, uh, the first RS was commercially not really. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot for the image, but commercially it was not. Well, Ford, Ford admitted in the interviews with me that every car sold for twenty. Five thousand pounds or something, and it cost for thirty-three thousand pounds or something. Yeah, you know, about that. yeah. So then, being ahead of what SV SVE it was called at that time, and we called it in Team RS finally. And um, you know, the board was not interested to do another RS. Of course, they never made money with any RS. So I said, okay, we are in the position now in the early two thousands where we can lose any money. So the ST was quite successful commercially. And uh, I agreed with Martin and say we do an ST plus so that plus sounds be more commercially attractive than an ST. So we got it through the board to do an ST plus. <laughs> and then change the and then change the said, but really we can't call it ST plus when it was all approved. So what would you call it? I said actually I would call it RS. <laughs> so that's the way how because RS was a no go at that time. So. Then we got it through that we could do this. Is your, this is your political mind coming out, understanding how to solve problems. Um, so that car, five cylinders, um, it was quite controversial at the time because it was so much power through the front wheels. We didn't think it was possible. But of course, yeah. the, the differential and the, the kinematics of the chassis was so much better than the yeah. Gen 1. It could handle the power, couldn't it? Yeah, it was. Fan I think it is as fantastic to drive as a rear-wheel drive because if you work this well you can drift with it you can you can it, it's a special way of driving but if you use your, your the diff correctly i think it had so much character yeah the five cylinders is always a great sounding engine as well isn't it yeah it's, in, it's an interesting car because the the latest focus rs i say latest you know the four-wheel drive car they made in 2016 initially everyone forgot about the five-cylinder car they just talked about how great this new car is but I think now things have calmed down a bit. I would I would have the five cylinder front yeah. wheel drive car. I think it's a sweeter car. It's lighter. It's not corrupted. Yeah. It's 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 yeah. a purer driving experience, which is weird because it shouldn't be because it's front wheel drive. But it is. Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. And you never owned one. No. <laughs> Amazing. So but you. That was a that we had to we had to decide what we really do. There was a discussion: do we need four wheel drive or front wheel drive? And 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 but. If we would have done four-wheel drive, you would have been in competition with the Mitsubishi's and the Subarus, and yeah. you could have not done on the production line a specific car like this. So I said we have to beat them on a different concept. 
So we have to make the front wheel drive work because that can be done in a production line. You've done, so you, you, uh, just to recap, you've done the E30 M3, the E28 M5, the 964 RS, couple of Focus RSs, so already your CV is... The STs. Yeah, sorry, STs as well. That Your CV is off the scale. Next move to America to go and run. Was it S, What was your exact job title in America? That was Director SVT. SVT. And Director Team RS. So I was in charge of global performance cars. So the STs, RSs, the Mustang Shelby GT500 and the Raptor. So all the US performance cars and the European because the European cars became global. The challenge there was that the Fiesta was introduced into the US. Yes. And uh, and and the ST was going to the US as well. So you, we had to develop a global Fiesta ST that is built in two plants, but the same car. And it was, you can't have a global performance car. And I always believed you can have a global performance car with the same specs because BMW does it with the M, Porsche does it yep. with the 911s. They don't do different specs. The performance cars sell globally. Ah, what about the Porsche 964 RS America? Do you remember that one? So they did a special 964 because they couldn't sell the RS. Yeah. And they sold one in America that was like a Carrera 2 with a thin glass or something. Yeah, yeah. That's the only example. I'm being a pedant now. But, I think. Um, but uh but the the Raptor is the one that, that stands out for me because was that was that already ready to go when you got there or was that it was halfway through so the concept was done and the design was done but the but what the, year was this was two I went there two thousand and eight and I started two thousand eight yeah what I find amazing is there's a we'll look back on a period in automotive history in in two thousand and seven the economy slowed down two thousand and eight. Lehman goes bust, you know, the, the global economy ends. And you might remember, like I do, the 2009 Geneva Motor Show was the most miserable experience of my life. We walk around the Geneva halls and all the performance cars were hidden behind the awnings because all the manufacturers were embarrassed mm -hmm. to be thinking of high performance. Everything was about economy, frugal cars. It was just, there was no showing off. It was just so boring. And I thought the performance car was dead. I thought it was dead. I really did. I thought I, don't, I'm, I was preparing to leave the industry. I didn't want to be <laughs> driving normal hatchbacks. Yeah. And then two years later, or whatever, 18 months later, the American manufacturers just go, for want of a better phrase, apeshit. Suddenly, there's just high-performance cars everywhere. How did you manage to do it? These are companies that I know Ford didn't, but these are companies that accepted government bailout money. Not Ford. I know, not Ford, I know, but they, they, they accepted government bailout money and they went and made Hemi, V8, everythings. But Ford and O didn't take the money. But still, it was incredibly brave to come out with these high-performance cars at a time when you could expect the public to react badly to them. But, of course, you got it right. They loved them, didn't they? They yeah, couldn't get the enough. Yeah, but US is different, isn't it? Yeah. Um, US is different. And, the, like, the Mustang Shelby GT500, you know, they have the, the Shelbys are done by Shelby. Yeah. But the Mustang Shelby GT500 has always been done by Ford. Yeah. So, but, and, um, and they, they were continuous, they were always there, so, and, and they were, uh, it was evolution, it was not always a new car. But the Raptor, the Raptor was the a Raptor very brave was, idea. But they had, uh, they had before, there was the F-150 Lightning. Yeah, but that was many years before, and it wasn't an off-road truck, it no, was a street. No, it was not an off-road truck. Yeah. But then they had the idea to do the F-150 as an off-road performance truck. Did, how did you feel about 
Because I, I was always fascinated by that. The, the original drives that we saw, videos, road tests, there were people, of course, they saw a truck with the big Fox suspension and the ride height. Everyone goes and tries to jump them and then bends the frame. This is not Ford. Ford can't be held responsible for a, a vehicle that can't just do the Baja off the shelf. So did you think it was, do you think Ford was too brave not saying to people with big sticker on the dashboard saying, don't try and jump this thing 20 feet in the air because it will bend? How did you control that? You could jump the car. Yeah. And when we, of course, we got then the claims that people put videos on on YouTube how the, then the frame was banned. Uh, but then that was not properly jumping, that was abusing. Yeah. Yeah, if you jump it and land on the nose and then smash the back, this is not how you should jump a car. Yeah, because yeah. we jumped the car. We built a test track in Michigan in the in the test area and like a motocross track for the Raptor and we jumped it. And we built jumps in there. We jumped it 20, 30 meters. And it, it can take that. If you jump it properly, it can take it. But just if you go over and and do not worry, it's, it's the same with a road car. If you go over, uh, do things with a road car that the road car is not supposed to do, yeah, then of course it breaks. And the Raptor will not break if you treat it like you should treat an off-road car. Yeah. And what you know what the car can take and what it can't. It's just not a tank. Just a very brave thing for a car maker to do. Because it's one thing warranting a vehicle that's going to stay on the public highway. But trying to warrant a vehicle that you know you're almost encouraging people to go off-road with. Is very is brave, isn't it? It's, it's difficult. It's yeah. a difficult area, let's say. I think the, the sign off of the Raptor was uh, fantastic. Week that we went first with the Raptor. First, we went to uh, to Silver Lake, where where on the on the on the east of Michigan at the lake where you have high dunes. You have sand dunes, two three hundred meters. So we did all the sand capability. Then we went into a place that's called uh, Rocks and Valley. So we went rock climbing and, and there, so to do what the, that, uh, you know, to prove that the diffs work in a proper way, that you can do really rock climbing with it. And then we went to northern Michigan on a small island. The whole island is an off-road park and you have mud, like uh, a half a meter, meter mud, so that we have the mud capability. And uh, that was an awesome week. <laughs> so of all actually I'll stop you there of all of your testing experiences for all the years what's your that sounds like a good one tell me one from BMW from Porsche tell me one that sticks in your mind where you think that was a great time I see BMW was was great the winter testing was really great was that are your plug where was that up in Sweden or no, where no, would you no, it was in the Alps was it yeah yeah we did that in the Alps so to go up the passes and and was really good and it was all the the you know the 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 ECU settings yes. at that time, cold start and all that had to be done, and then Nardo of course. I think Nardo we did we did average speed with a M5 with 250 k's per hour. That was huge at that time. Yeah, it was, was the mid 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 80s. Were you you must have been? No, you weren't at Porsche when Mr. Rocha did the McLaren F1 engine, but you must have. You must have seen that project, the idea of McLaren going to... No, I wasn't there when that... But, but the, you must have read about it no. and thought, what an exciting... I mean, that was incredible. A meeting of Formula One technology with yeah. the... Was he the best engine guy you ever met, Mr. Rocha? Did, I mean, what did... Yeah. He was. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. Yeah? No doubt, yeah. 
he, yeah. he, it seems to me like that his engines, I mean, the engine in the E28 M5, even now, if you were to drive that as a new engine, you'd think it was special. Yeah, no, he was. Uh, and yeah, I, I, he was the best engine guy ever. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm so proud that I could have worked with him. What a CV. Okay, so you're in America. You've, you've done, you're trying to create a global performance cars for Ford. Um with quite some success because let's face it the Fiesta became very popular in the US didn't it straight yeah, away the Focus ST as well that had to be built in Michigan yep. and in and in Salary what was it like trying to sell or trying to interest Americans in little hatchbacks because it's not what they normally like is it the idea of fast little hatchbacks it's not but the cars became quite popular <coughs> quite quickly didn't they yeah it was in the US I also had uh, my, I had the job global motorsport development motor, global motorsport business development and especially what to do in the US. And that was then the touring car in China was was one makeup in uh, was it was in India I think. And also it was how to introduce the fiesta in the US, making it attractive for the people who love the small hotels. And um, then it was like, do we go stage racing? Do we do a one makeup? And Does the name Ken Block come in at any point at this point now? Yeah, yeah of course. I got Ken Block into Ford. <laughs> and then, and, uh, then uh, I, I worked in Europe. I supported Andreas Ericsson on Rallycross yeah. a bit with the Fiesta. Yeah. So then my idea was, okay, if something is interesting in small cars in motorsport in the US, it must be Rallycross. And then seeing there was the X Games were very prominent. So I thought, okay, go to the X Games, but this was like parallel, it was not racing against each other. So we discussed with ESPN and said, do a tryout, do also like Rallycross with the X Games. And um, I convinced Andreas Ericsson, he always wanted to do Pikes Peak. And I said, I support you in doing Pikes Peak with a Rallycross car. If the car stay over for a month and do the X Games as well, so then we did that. We did the Pikes Peak with him in two thousand nine, yeah. And then we did the first X Games in LA, and uh, then Kenny Breck won on the on the with the Fiesta. So and then they tried the next year. They tried to do the really rally cross, and this went big with the X Games then, and that became then an own rally cross series in the US. Yeah. And with that, the Fiesta got really, for the enthusiasts, got really on the map. Because these cars had 600 horsepower. How did the marketing department feel about you doing that? Because this, in a traditional car company, that's the marketing department. But what you've done is you've, you've done a fantastically expedient, cost-effective way of totally altering 
the public's view of a particular car, you've become a marketing manager without then realising it. I presume the marketing department were very defensive because you they would never have thought of doing that, would they? Yeah, they were interested in sponsoring the X Games. Yeah. Wasn't it? Because the X Games were quite popular. Yeah. And still are quite popular with different. And, but, uh, and then they supported it because it was the X Games. And the X Games, it's quite use orientated yep. with the skateboards, with the BMX, and then and, and the motocross. So it was the right target group yeah. as well. So that's why they supported it. And then I got Tanner Faust in and I got Ken Block in. So I was trying to get Ken Block. Ken Block always wanted to do WRC. Yep. But with Subaru, he couldn't because they were not in WRC anymore. Yep. So I offered him, I said, if you join Ford, I, I get you some WRC events. Yeah. So this is why he left Subaru and joined Ford at yeah. that time. Amazing. God, that was big in the US for Ken Block leaving Subaru and joining. Ford. Well, I mean, do you remember the number of memes they would have on all of these special videos of yeah. Ken Block's leaving, going from Subaru to Ford? It was, it was, a, it was big news. Yeah. So, how long did you stay at Ford in America for? Until two thousand twelve. Twelve, and then, 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 what was the next move? That was Volkswagen. Volkswagen. Okay. Yeah. Because I would have liked to stay in the US a bit more, but finally, I wanted to go back to Europe. Yeah. And Were your family with you in America at that point? Yeah, yeah. And then was like take the, take the, uh, you know. Then they approached me from Volkswagen, and uh, I was not really interested. Uh, this was pre. This was when they were thinking about going back to w, going to WRC. They've decided. They decided. To to the decision was already made by the board. Yeah. 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 And they were already rallying with uh, with the Skodas in two thousand and twelve. Yeah. And. And then so okay, if I don't take this opportunity, you you are on the bad side of the whole Volkswagen group, and it's made difficult to go back to Europe. So I decided, okay, yeah, let's do this. And also, I tried a couple of times to get out of racing and to be really focusing on performance cars. Yeah. But I was always taken back. That was at Ford again. I joined for the for the performance car. You ended up doing rally, rallycross and, and, and doing up. Then yeah, I I became when Martin Viteka left was just eighteen months after I joined. I became also motorsport director. So I was in charge of Formula Ford of the touring car of okay. of. I was also in charge of the engine program for Jordan because they had the Cosworth engine and Cosworth was owned by Ford and that was named the RS engine. Yep. And also the whole WRC with M Sport, so I always was pulled back. So at a certain point, I said, it doesn't make sense to try to escape. It's <laughs> you have to face it. So you go. Actually, that's an incredible period of, of WRC because Volkswagen was dominant. Now you came back in and you created a car that was so much better than anyone else's. No one stood a chance, did they? It was it was a really incredible yeah. competition car, and also. You've done. You've demonstrated circuit racing. You know about motorbikes. Was this your first real foray into running a rally team? Was that your first, or had you done something like that before? No, we see when did the Perry Ducker team. We had an old yeah. Perry Ducker team. A private but but team, but so but actually, not, not, and then it was then it was with Ford. I was in charge of the WSC program that was run by M Sport. So I got all the insights and knew what's going on and how to handle it. So. So, the, the the Polo WRC was it was a it was a dominant car. Obviously, Mr. Ogier is you know building up yeah. championships. Yeah. Did you in, did you enjoy it as an experience compared to um, sports car racing, compared to your exposure to Formula One, or 
or what did you feel you were there in a period when the sport was in decline a bit with with viewing figures how how, how do you feel about it now yeah, it was four years living the dream that yeah was, yeah the team was was fantastic we had such a great great team and it was a really good great experience and the sport is really great yeah for me still rallying is the is, is the most exciting sport to be in what are your thoughts on on the on how rallying can retain its honesty as a sport but but appeal to a younger generation and still be televisable how, how, how does it work I developed a strategy how I think rallying could be as exciting as Formula One for TV and uh, was during the years at Volkswagen this was with, with Red Bull's help I presume as well because they were very interested weren't they yeah, they, you know, Red Bull was part of the promoter, so yep. they own 50% or whatever now of the promoter at that time. So we, it was quite tricky to put it, I had a lot of discussions with the manufacturers, with the drivers to convince them that we have to do something. And came to a concept that got approved in the W, up to the WRC commission. And then John Todd didn't like it because he said it's, it's not the spirit of rallying. And that's why it didn't come through. I'm absolutely convinced if that would have come through, rallying would be now nearly as big as F1. Because car makers love the fact that rally cars look like stuff you can buy, don't they? It's just, for me, fundamentally, a car that's sliding around that looks like a car you can buy on the street. And also the proof. You are in minus 20, minus 25 on the snow in temperature. You are on high levels, like if you go in Mexico, up to 2,000 plus meters. You go on zero on sea level, yeah. and you go in the heat. So you've proven that the same car works in all kinds of conditions. Works on tarmac, works on ice, works on, on gravel. So the, it shows that the car manufacturer has this experience to make a car reliable on whatever ground, whatever uh, was a uh, climate conditions. So, so, so as as someone who knows motorsport inside out, car companies only really go racing to market their brand. They don't go racing just because they love racing. Yeah. Um, so, do you think rallying is the uh, is the is the cleanest expression of that? Because the cars, to me, they look like cars. Yeah, they. I think they look like cars, and they are still a lot like cars because of the regulation. You have to have the original body. Of course, you reinforce the body with all the roll cage that is in there. But it's, I would, you know, it's the motorsport, it, when it started, it was not a marketing tool. It was a development tool. Yeah. And then it became more and more a marketing tool. But I still believe it's a lot of a development tool as well as a company does it right. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunities to get young engineers into racing. It's not just the technology of it it's the speed of development it's the innovation it is trying new things and get this mindset into new engineers is a great training ground and then for engineers going back in 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 mainstream yeah and bringing this bit of this mindset into mainstream i think that it's another big advantage that motorsport can offer to manufacture and that is i think it's not it's not seen to be as valuable as I believe it is. Interesting. Right, let's take a very quick break, um, and then we'll cover. We'll have a, a short stint afterwards, another 20 minutes or so, and then I'll release uh, Yoss. And uh, while we're doing that, go and have a, a biscuit. I suggest a custard cream maybe this time of day when you're listening. Um, thank you for listening. Back in a minute. 
If you have a rare, sporting or iconic vehicle to sell, then contact the Collecting Cars consignment team today and sell with the market leader. And if you're a watch enthusiast, then don't forget to check out the auctions on watchcollecting.com. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your tea break and your custard cream. If you'd, if you'd moved towards a sort of chocolate bourbon, I can understand, but that's an aggressive move on, uh, on a Monday morning as it is here. Um, I'm having a flat white, which is actually extremely strong. We'll talk about the fact that we're sitting in Frank Williams's old office in a minute. This is a a room steeped in history. But I want to so I want to fast forward now. We've we've uh, uh, Jos' career has has gone from Ford. Um, he then leaves Ford, goes to Volkswagen, and is in charge of one of the dominant eras in the WRC. Volkswagen then pulls out of of WRC, which must have hurt. That you must have not liked that decision. But but equally, did you understand it when he won that that much? How much more do you have to prove? No, I didn't understand it. Because when when I left Volkswagen to go to McLaren in end of 16, I had the confirmation from the board for another three years. So that's many uh, I heard and it was written that I knew that they would get out and that's why I left to escape. But I only left after I had the confirmation from the board that they continue for another three years in the new in the new regulations they started in seven in what in. 17, yeah, 17, 18, 19. So when the car was fully developed, it would have been even more dominant than the car in the period. I and that was there. the car done? Was the car finished? Completely finished. So what did you do with it? Um, just park it, I think. I, I was gone then. <laughs> but what, so are, the are there finished WRC cars that would have been capable of winning world championships sitting in a garage <coughs> somewhere in Wolfsburg? Yeah. yeah. And it was through 16... We, this when, was Dieselgate, was it? Was this was all to do with Dieselgate? Or was this before that? Yeah, of course it has to do yeah. with Dieselgate. Was the end of sixteen. Yeah, and it, it, I can understand the decision. I don't think it was right, but I can understand the decision. Um, sorry, sipping my coffee. So we we will brush over the McLaren, the the McLaren uh, situation. Just tell me how long you worked at McLaren for that particular three months. Three months, okay. <laughs> But uh, obviously, we know, those of us that, know, that follow the sport know that there was a big change at, at McLaren in the racing uh, side of the business, and Ron Dennis left. Jost was uh, was a Ron Dennis guy, and in a, a bit like the way uh, a lion, when it comes into a new pride, clears out all of the children. You obviously, you you were one of the people that left. And where did you go after that? Then, um, you know, when when I left Volkswagen, then. Uh, then Dies, who runs Volkswagen, he said, "Just if it doesn't work out, you're always welcome back." And uh, then when so you when kept door, how do you keep doors open? How do you leave a company knowing you're pissed off with them for for backing out of an, an agreement, but somehow they let you back in? How do you? What's the skill there? I understood the decision, mm. fully understand the decision, and again, and I can follow the logic why they had to do this yeah even if i would have done something different but i really rate these and the volkswagen management that highly that i understand their decisions even if it's not my view yeah so um and i always kept the good connection with them as well and i got a good relationship with these on a professional basis and then when i left McLaren, he says he he looking he wants to re 
them and making the R brand better if I would be interested to to do that and be head of the R Limited at Volkswagen. So of course that it's performance cars again and they had created big projects. So there were in before I left we released seven new models and that was the biggest. Now they have the biggest R fleet in the in the in the showrooms uh, ever. Yeah. And that was really exciting. And and good budgets, good good time to, to make the cars, good good team of engineers. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. It was it was a separate building, separate company outside and we got all the support. It was close enough to the factory. Did you do the Golf GTI or was that was that no. still separate? That was still no, separate. separate. Yeah. yeah. The GTI so, is done by the Golf guys. So only the R models are done and it's R and R line as well. So okay. it's the the highest selling normal cars as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're so you're quite happily back in the performance road car world and you get a call to say this is Williams. Yeah. And by the way, I think the latest Golf R is is absolute masterpiece. Yeah. Everybody who has not driven it should drive it. It's an absolute masterpiece. The, the dynamics of the car I love. I struggle with the haptic the, the, all the yeah, but we do say what it's R related. Yeah. The chassis, <laughs> the stuff you can control. <laughs> Good control. Yeah, yeah. The chassis, the settings. Yeah. And uh, if you have you been on the Nurburgring, dunning the Nurburgring setting? No. It's absolutely amazing. That it's something you have to do. The I Golf will. R with a performance pack and drive it in the specific Nurburgring setting, and it has a drift setting. You can do donuts with the car, and it's. It's just an amazing car. So how do you feel about... So you're... you're, you're I mean, obviously, I remember you, the reason we got back in contact is you phoned me and said, we're, we're doing some R event, can you help out? Um, mm-hmm. And about a month later, you have this new job. So you've got a phone call from Williams with the, the offer of the top job. Did you have to think twice because you were happy doing road cars? Or was this a, a challenge you always wanted to have to be to run a Formula One team? I had to meet the owners and to discuss with the owners and see what their strategy is, what they have in mind. If that would have been we change the team name or we are an investment company, just uh, make it efficient and we want to sell it in two or three years, then I would not have joined. Because I only joined because I've seen the full commitment to be the Williams team and to get back to the top. So we're sitting and here. And then I don't have to think twice. Yeah, okay. Because so, I was retired yeah. from Volkswagen. I was retired, so I was. I bought my enduro bike back. I raced in 78 to do the European uh, Classic Enduro Championship. So now I I, I gave the enduro bike to an to enduro museum in Germany to keep it there for a couple of years. When you intend to use it again. Yeah. Um, so we're sitting here now, on, uh, and I'll, I'll paint a visual picture for you. I'm an incredible, almost sort of uh, coffin-shaped, huge um, uh, boardroom table. And this is this is Sir Frank's, the late Sir Frank Williams's um, old office, isn't it? Yeah. So how do you, how does it feel having access to this? I mean, this the man who was a racing legend. This, yeah, this is a is a. It must be quite poignant to to think that you now occupy this space. Yeah, but to really keep this office clean and uh, we we don't use it a lot we use it to sign driver contracts and we use it for very special events like this one but in general we 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 leave it as it is and it's like the the holy place within Williams so it's a it's a racing team that's that's achieved so much over its history 
we know that in recent years it's really struggled and hasn't had the results that maybe fit what the British public always expected because Williams became synonymous with almost perpetual success. You know, you, they were always winning championships. They were always at the top. And then, of course, there were many years when it wasn't so easy. How do you go about rebuilding that success? How do you do it? Do you have to restructure the entire team? Do you have to get entirely new people? It would have seemed for so many people it's a very daunting task. Yeah, I think it is. And um, I think it needs all the experience from all the jobs I had before to be capable of of doing something. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think there are a lot of talented people here. It's a, it's a good spirit. But if you have a team that has been last for three years, it is, it can become a habit. Yeah. And it became, okay, we are not good at all. And you've seen there were a lot of uh, a lot of financial restrictions why it happened it's not because the team is bad or the people are bad it's, there was no investment so you have the skill you have the talent you just need to reactivate it is that is that what you yeah, think I think you have to to move forward and change all the time yeah? Yeah. but uh, and there was from Dorton did the big investment at the end of 19 before the cost cap came in and the yeah, end of 19 before the cost cap came in so but you have to make this also work it's not just to invest in new machines and in new infrastructure and just getting better you have to establish it you have to get used to work of it, it and uh, you have to to change the culture as well and I think it's that interesting that you said you can get used to being last I, I think anyone in their professional life can understand that you can get stuck in a rut can't you mm. How, so what, how do you break out of that? How do you inspire a group of people to not to not be like that? I think first you have to get the pride back. yeah, And you have to get back that if you are in Formula 1, there are only 10 teams in the world who are in Formula 1. And this is the ultimate motorsport. So if you are there, you, you are not a nobody. If you are there, you are there. And you should be proud of that and get the pride back and get the, get, uh, the, you know, get the spirit back to do decisions. So how do you think it helps then being called Williams and having this history to refer back to? Or do you think it is a hindrance because it's almost daunting to try and become as successful as it once was? Do you think it's a help or a hindrance? No, I think it's a help. I think it's an absolute need. Yeah. Yeah, because everybody working for Williams is proud about the history and the history is a major part. Um, but you have still have to move forward and you have to get the spirit back in that made Williams great and the spirit that was there when Williams was successful. Yeah. So it's been um, a, a very interesting last year because you've had this rising star driving for you, George Russell, who has, you know, he, he generated so much interest because of his, in, his incredible Saturday driving performances, you know, the, the qualifying, we would see a Williams in a place we didn't expect it, which must have been great for you, but you must have always known at some point he was going to be given the other job by Mercedes. That must have been interesting for you to manage because you couldn't allow the whole thing to be about George. It, you know, the, you were giving him a, clearly giving him a very good car as well that he could he could get more from it. How did you manage that? You had this because for a long time in in, in twenty twenty one. George Williams, George Russell was Williams, wasn't he? For many people who were sort of casual observers. But you knew he was going. Um, you've obviously now filled, you filled the seat with a, an equal talent with Alex. So how did you manage that? You must have been so pleased for the publicity for the team, but equally wary that you knew that was going to end. Yeah, but as long as it's there, it is there. And I think we, George is a, very, is a great team player. 
and if we have a good relationship with the team, it he is a and he felt like a Williams guy until the thirty first of December. Yeah, yeah, and he is still very close with the team, and uh, he will always be a part of the team, and he will be always be proud that he has raced for Williams for three years. Yeah, and this is uh, having the relationship of the driver and the team. Um, that that keeps it going, even if you know you might lose him. So he was still, and we were supporting him in getting the the Mercedes seat. Yeah, and I think that is key to that as well. He could be very open and honest to to me about it, and he knew he got the support, and nobody would be disappointed, and he would get the same service. He would still be loved as 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 if he would stay. I think that was that that was the basis of the good results in twenty one. You've you've worked now with some truly elite talents. You know the idea of Sebastian Ogier, of George Williams. What what is it about these guys that and women, I suppose that 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 make them stand out? What is it that means that Sebastian Ogier can dominate the way he did? What is it about George Russell that means he can pull out a performance from? an F1 car that his teammate can't get anywhere near and everyone's going, wow, how did you manage that? You've seen it as someone that runs the team, you're the boss. What, what is it about these people? I, I wouldn't see that, see that that Nicky could have been anywhere near where George was. Okay, this year. Yep. So uh, there was a couple of times he out-qualified he yep. George towards the end of the season. He had a couple of times, it was not his fault that he could not, he was on at the speed to, to do it and it was not his fault that it didn't happen. Okay. So he was more unlucky than George was lucky, but yep. uh, you know, for a for a for a champion needs needs luck as well. He needs to be on the lucky side of life, yep. otherwise it would never happen. Um, but he is, I think, he's very. Uh, I think also the times, the the times changed, and how to be a real champion changed in the last twenty thirty years. Yeah, you have to be you have to be really egoistic. I think that's a big difference between a top sports car driver who has to share a car and a Formula One driver who just has to make his car its best. Yeah, he needs a big ego. He yeah. needs a, he needs to big self confidence. But on the other hand, he needs to be very sociable. He needs to to get the team on his side. He needs everybody working hard for him. And uh, and he has to be demanding, but in the right way that he gets what he what he wants. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a sort of sociable selfishness is what they need. They need yeah. to look after number one, but make sure that everyone around them loves them. Yeah, and they have to get better under pressure. That's I think the thing. That isn't it? they have to get. Uh, they have to. They have to. We'll say seek the pressure and seek the. The, the, the big challenges. So we're about to move into a new technical era of Formula One. Um, we know that everyone's talking about the 2022 cars. No one's seen one yet. Um, is this a, a leveling of the playing field for Williams? Is, does this mean that 22 is an easier year because everyone started from the same position? Or do we just have the same problems we've always had in Formula One, which is Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull have so much money that they will always be able to start with a new set of regulations further up than a team like Williams because they have more money. How does it work, do you think? No, you have the cost cap in place since last year. But the car and the concept of the of the 22 car started earlier, of course. Um, it's, it's very difficult to say 
Well, they say um, the 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 teams who had a fantastic car up to now, for sure they're capable to do a fantastic car as well. And the teams who had the problems to do a good car uh, might have a. It's not that easy for them to do a brilliant car as it is for the guys who had a brilliant car. Um, and I think the level field, the investments have been different for the big teams in the past years. Even with the cost kept coming in, these investments pay off. Yeah. So I think it's the cost cap is important, but it's leveling out over the next five to ten years. It's not you put the cost cap in and then it's a, a equal playing field. That it's not the case, but of course it gives the chance to 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 for the teams to come closer. But it's it's completely unknown, isn't it? It's nobody knows. I only know how our car looks. Are you like. excited? I have no idea. Are you excited for that like. first time that you run the car? Presumably Barcelona or maybe somewhere in the UK. I don't know. Are you excited to have that moment where one of your drivers says, "Wow, we've got something here." Um. Yeah. If he says this, then it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> if he says the opposite, it's it's a bit different. Yeah. I think for next year, it's. It's more about the development speed, how the team is prepared and how the team can do changes. What yeah. do you think the lap time, average lap time reduction will be over the year? Do you think it will be dramatic? Do you think the cars will be three seconds a lap quicker by the end of the year than they were at the start on the same track? It's, it's impossible to say right now. Yeah. And I, I don't think they will be as much slower as, as it's published. Yeah. I think there will be less so, but you know, it's more to do a, a proper job, do a solid job, and then develop the car from wherever you started from. How did you politically manage to to navigate your way through the idea that you have Williams is a team that uses a Mercedes engine, and you now have a very publicly Red Bull ex Red Bull driver coming to drive for you, who is part of the Red Bull family. How on earth do you navigate that? That almost seems like an impossible situation to deal with. But I, I don't know. I said it was it was easier than everybody believes. Uh, you know, I have a good relationship with Red Bull. Yeah. Because I worked with Red Bull in the Sauber times a lot, so I know uh, Matuschitz personally quite well. So and uh, they were the main sponsor at Volkswagen for the rally program. Um, I know these guys, I had a good relationship with them, you know, and also uh, with Dr. Marco, then um, when Verstappen, I gave him the engine package to get into Formula 3 with Amos Ford, otherwise yep. he wouldn't have gone in Formula 3 at that year. Yeah. So, and then he got straight into Red Bull after a couple of Formula 3 races, and I discussed that with Marco. So, I have a good relationship with Red Bull. So they trust me and I have a good relationship with Toto as well because we ran, we were in charge when I was at Volkswagen and he was at Mercedes. We both had to run Formula 3 in a proper way and we got Formula 3 up to where it got to at the end together. So I, I have a trust relationship with Red Bull side and I have that with on the, on the Mercedes side. And uh, I think they both trust me as well so that we handle it in a proper way that it doesn't damage either Red Bull or Mercedes or any of their competition issues. Yeah. Like that is where, yeah, I think that's how it could happen. If we drew a Venn diagram of the people capable of navigating that particular situation, 
I think we can safely say you're the only person on the planet that probably could have done that. It's an incredible feat. I want to talk to you about a lesson. At the time, I felt like a tennis ball. Being... <laughs> I can I can only imagine how that felt. I want to talk to you about a less savoury thing now. So, uh, Williams uh, was in the in the spotlight in the last race in Abu Dhabi for for less fortunate reasons. Um, Nicholas. Um, Ultimately, you know, an oversteer moment for him changed the course of racing history. And we now know that he suffered some appalling, disgusting uh, abuse online. What are your thoughts on that? How, how, do, how do you help a young driver deal with something that's so awful, that is so undeserved? How, how do you feel about it? Uh, of course, everybody feels here feels bad about it. And it's really completely unfair. Yeah, you have a young guy fighting for position in a race, and uh, doing overtaking. He gets on the on the dirt spot, and then he gets an oversteer and crashes the car, in in where he's just wants to do his very best for for the team and for his result, and has nothing else in mind, and uh, whatever the crash caused, is not, was never in his mind, and it was not intended. And uh, and this thing is was a racing accident that was in a in a fight in the race. What the spectators want to see, the spectators go to racing because they want to see fights for positions. And uh, you can't blame a young driver who is doing that, or any driver, or else an experienced driver is doing that. And if you are in that focused and concentrated, then th- things can go wrong. And if things go wrong, this is a race accident. And then blaming him for what happened then thereafter, I think is completely out of context. And uh, you see what, what that can make to a driver's mind. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's very bad. It can be extremely bad. I think that, that Nicky reacted very professionally in a very positive way. And uh, I think his response, he posted after a couple of days and it's good he waited to calm the situation down. And uh, I think it was spot on, on timing and spot on, on the text, what, what he said. And it's, I think if that helps to, to understand the situation for many people a bit better, then he feels also okay about it because he could do something good for, for somebody else in the future not to suffer what he suffered. Yeah, I think... Um... I think you handled it very well. The, the idea of a very calm statement, I feel, is after the event. Um, I was always told by many people when I'd get a bit of abuse, they say, well, why do you look at it? It's not so easy as that. You know, if, you, if you're no. engaged with the outside world, you can't then just shut yourself off because you become a hermit. You can't do that. Yeah. You can't unsee things. So I, well, I hope he's going to come back stronger and build on that and use it to make himself an even better driver. And I, And you were quite right. I wasn't being dismissive of him relative to George's performances last year, because I want to say that at the end of the year, he was getting much closer, wasn't he? He was, you know, and and his race performances were always much closer than people ever gave him credit for, because they'd always yeah. remember the the George Russell qualifying performances. Yeah. So you've got a strong driver lineup next year, this year, sorry. You really do, don't you, with Alex yeah. as well? Yeah, and I think Nicky had a very difficult time. His rookie year was in 20. Yeah. What was uh, the, the main was corona affected and yeah. it was a very strange year yeah and if you come in as a rookie in that year where everything changes and where he has to focus so much more on every single race than anybody else 
because everything is new for him. It's extremely difficult. Yeah. And then, say, the last year was the first really regular season for him. And he developed very well through the season. And he really he deserves the drive. There is no doubt. Um, okay, now I have to ask you, what went on at Abu Dhabi? Do, do, you, do you think it, the sports has, will just continue without people reflecting on it? Do you think it was the right decisions were made, the wrong decisions were made? Would you rather say nothing about it? What? Come on, I can't believe you don't have an opinion about what happened in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, I've seen it on TV because I was at... <laughs> I was one, at one of your COVID I was, incidents. <laughs> exactly, I work from home. Um, but if you are not there, of course you have a different view because you see it from the distance. Yeah, And I know Masi quite well. I met him a couple of times. I had discussions with him. I had discussions with the, with the stewards. Most of the racing stewards of the ex-racing drivers I know. And I had quite a lot of discussions, especially with Emanuele Pero, so I know him for 40 years now, and um, had discussions, what are, the, what are the problems? What are the issues? What are the difficulties the stewards and Masi have to go through during a race? And I see it's very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. But to see how they handle it, I, ha I think they handle it very well for what's going on. And also Masi is very professional and he always has the... I think, I don't believe anybody in the FAA of the stewards prefer at any time any team or any driver. That's I'm absolutely, absolutely thousand percent sure about. You have to take the decisions quite quickly and immediate. And whoever has been in that decision and is seen by millions or billions of people at life at the same time, it's a huge pressure. And I believe they have handled it very well. What I think is not right, and I think that it's what also the people who involved is that there can be a conversation with the team principals or anybody with the team, with the race director during the race. The, the way, and, the, and to broadcast it as well, for people to hear it, yeah, it's I, crazy. I, I, think, I think the broadcast is not the issue. I think the, the, conversation. the conversation itself, it's the same as when you look at football, that the coach is discussing during the match with the referee. This the referee, would not the referee's work. word should be final. I, I, they should tell. They tell people what to do, and those people do it. That's it's final, whatever it is. Yeah. And also, these decisions during the race should not be able to be protested in or to looked in at the back. If you have a football match and there is a penalty, the penalty will not be taken away after the match if it seems that it wasn't right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that has to be clarified by the rules. Yeah. And uh, that's the only thing I think has to be done. The rest, I think it's, you know, you had these situations through the year where the, the championship could have been in a different position before the last race yeah. uh, easily. And it leads to this. And if you have this kind of tension, then things happen. It's and, an uh, interesting cultural position as well, because the idea of a, mo of a car being so far ahead for a race, for, for, the, for the entirety of a race, and then there being a safety car period that closes everyone up, and then the car that was clearly outperformed during the race, and Max was outperformed, then goes on to win. Of course, that's the basis of NASCAR, isn't it? That is how NASCAR works. You know, you end up with, you wait for the safety car situations, and then when it goes green again, 
quite almost always the car that wins isn't the car that was fastest during the race. Yeah. It's interesting that Western racing, you know, the idea of European racing finds that so difficult to stomach. But American racing almost embraces that, doesn't it? Yeah, but it, it's the same principle all year. If you go through all year when there was a safety car and the gaps get closed, this is what happens with a safety car. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's the only solution. You can't reinstall the gaps after a safety car. It's impossible. Yeah. And I think this is, this is something that is in the nature of racing. Yeah. And if it happens at the end of the championship, where the points are the same of the two drivers and it happens and changes then the race result it it's life isn't it and you can't talk oh, about is it fair I, or unfair I but think for you and i've raced all you know for 20 something years and you, racing is your life for those of us that have raced it is life because i think you can safely say that the number of times that you have lost out and the number of times you've gained from those situations is always the, it always pans out it's the balanced, same yeah. but if you've just come into formula 1 you know with the drive to survive netflix and you are and you you think you you're in this new sport you've not seen before you don't understand it you look at it and think how did that happen i think mm. this is what's interesting yeah, they yeah, don't they don't it, they yeah. can't be as philosophical as you because they think it's unfair the way that lewis has lost out because lewis he knows in his head that he probably won a championship because timo glock change position you know he knows how precarious his first championship was it still must have been very painful for him but how many times has he won a race and benefited from a, a similar situation maybe just as many yeah i would say you know this is like life if you say uh, sport is absolutely fair what what is fair is life fair life isn't fair all the time isn't yeah. it? and then and but, but what, what is fair it's quite difficult i think it's i think Marcy did it very well under the pressure he was and the decisions he had taken. He wanted the championship to to be decided without anybody else being involved. Yeah. Yeah. This is why he let these cars through. Yeah. Because he said they are first and second. They were first and second before the safety car. So they should be in that position to decide on the championship. It's fully understandable. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and it's it was everything was according to rules that are in place yeah as i understand it so it's it's i think nobody can say that max would not deserve the title for last that's year. that's really point I, I agree with you he is a deserving champion he won the most races during the yeah. year his driving was extraordinary one of the two of them was going to win and it was settled in an unconventional way yeah. but that's that how many championships throughout all motorsport get settled in an unconventional way. So many. Look at, yeah. if you would take a global view of every form of motorsport, it's, there's always something like this going on, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, if it would have changed the championship that somebody would clearly wouldn't have deserved, it would have won. It would be a different situation. But with those two drivers, both deserve to win. Yeah. Yeah. And Mercedes still got the manufacturer's title. So it's, I think it goes back and when, when we, in a couple of years, we will look back and say it was a very exciting Formula One season. Oh, absolutely. So, Williams in 22, what's your what's your aim? Do, do you keep it modest and quiet or do you say that you want to reach Q3 10 times? What, what's your goal in your head or specified for the team? It's difficult to put it on positions because nobody knows what the somebody might come up with a different solution that is outperforming everybody. Maybe three teams have that. You you don't know. Yeah, I think the the objective has to be to improve during the season. Yeah, to to be, have a better car com, 
competitive wise in the field at the end of the season than the beginning of the season. So it's now a start of a new regulation for a couple of years. So it's to understand the car, overtake some of the competition during the development phases, then come with a better car in 23 and have a continuous improvement through the field, wherever it starts off. If we start being the ninth, tenth fastest car or being the third, fourth fastest car, nobody knows. But you still have to have this continuous improvement. One question, the 15-inch tyre, how, do, how, how do you feel about that? The 18-inch. It's 18-inch now, is it? Yeah. God, okay, there you go, I'm off the pace. So 18 inches, how, how does this profoundly, I mean, it's such a big technical change. Um, do you think it's the right thing to do? Do you think it's, a, it's, it's too big a change in terms of diameter, a bigger leap? How does it work? Because it's going to alter the performance of the cars quite radically. Yeah, but it? I don't really mind if it's the same for everybody. Yeah, then it's fine, isn't it? It's it's uh, the the tires are heavier or the wheels are heavier. Yeah. So it needs a different training for the pit crew to yep. change the tires. It's more demanding to change the tires. So it needs slightly different processes, but that it's part of it as well, isn't it? Yeah. So. So I think the cars look more modern when they have, because the road cars are going to bigger diameters, wheels. Yeah. So I think it's the right way to go. We'll and finish on that note. Thank you very much for your time, Jost. That was um, a bit of a marathon. I apologize to you. Hopefully you can go. Thank you, Chris. Your no, it's fine. But that, I mean, so we've gone from, we've gone from E30 M3 air exchange within the cylinder and de defining the valve sizes and of, a, of an S14 engine to running or Formula One team, your, your your modesty makes me always think that you almost will willfully forget how much you've done. But it's a remarkable career, and I hope, I really hope that it continues. And I hope that you end up behind your head. There's some significant silverware for the team, and I hope that that you get some more of that in 2022. Thank you for talking to us. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris, and thanks for all the interest of your listeners. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to work with you and to talk to you, Chris. Cheers, boss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.